You are listening to the Central Church Podcast. To learn more about Central Church, including our gathering times, visit us online at centralsanford.net. Today's talk comes from Pastor Alan Brumbach. God is good, and all the time, let's pray. Father, we need you more than we've ever needed you before. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the opportunity to just worship you and praise you for your faithfulness, God. Your faithfulness is new every morning. From the rising sun to the setting same, we're going to praise your name, God. Father, thank you for technology and for those watching online. We pray for our missionaries around the world, and we love you, Lord, and we praise you. May the words of my mouth and may the meditation of all of our hearts please you in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you are a first-time guest, thank you so much. As Ali said, we're so glad that you are here worshiping with us. And if you're in the room, uh, you can also, uh, you can text into the number that we shared earlier, or you can fill out one of these cards, take your next step card, and you can turn it into the offering plate as you leave here. That'll be a blessing to us today. Uh, or you can go to our next steps room as you leave or out to our welcome uh, area where you can pick up, if this is your first time, a, a free little gift from us, which includes a, a free gift card to Chick-fil-A, because we want to make sure that you eat Christian bird uh, this week. So please, if you would, and, and you know, we're doing this baptism service next Sunday. If you have trusted Christ as your Savior and you want to take that next step, we would love to help you get connected with that. So please let us know. Well, take your copy of God's Word and turn to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19 is where we're going to begin. We're going to be looking at Three passages of Scripture, all will be on the screen, but we're going to begin in Matthew 19 and verse 3, and if you do not have a Bible, the pew Bible in front of you is our gift to you this morning. Let's stand as we read God's Word in Matthew chapter 19, verse number 3. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, Genesis chapter 1, Genesis 1 and verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And as I said last week, God here made the creeps. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now chapter 3, verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In your pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I've commanded you, you shall not... Uh, eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat it of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to the dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living." And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. You may be seated. The question we're going to be looking at this morning is a fundamental question. It's the question of who am I? Who am I? And the answer to that question has changed dramatically in our society over the recent years. The worldview of our society has shifted 
in the past few decades from a Christian worldview to a post-Christian or post-secular worldview. And this society that we live in is now being shaped by this worldview, and it's being shaped through social media, through television, through education, through business, and through politics. Now, many of us uh, are concerned about the weather of our day. That is, we're concerned about each day and what's happening on television, what's happening in social media world, and what's happening uh, in politics, and what's happening in Washington. We're so concerned about the weather of the day, but I would say that we probably should be looking at the overall climate of our day. Because the weather we are experiencing today, these different, si- these different issues that we're struggling with, is symptomatic of a greater cultural climate problem that is, that's, uh, sociologists and, and, and Christian theological thinkers call expressive individualism. Carl Truman, in his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, says this. He says, expressive individualism refers to the idea that in order to be fulfilled, to be an authentic person, to be genuinely me, I need to be able to express outwardly or perform publicly that which I am on the inside. So the most authentic individual, the, the most real person, is the person who expresses or performs outwardly that which they feel inwardly. And so we have expressions in our day, and you maybe heard them this week, uh, expressions like, you just live your truth, or I'm living my truth. You do you. Never apologize to anyone about who you are. And these may not sound to be very uh, bad sayings, but yet, if you really get to the core of them, they are rally cries of our modern society raging against the Creator God. And so for us this morning, we want to ask this question, who am I and how do I help people? How do I help people who are struggling with the answer to that question? Because there are many people, maybe even you this morning or you watching online, that are struggling with that very fundamental question of who am I? Now, we've been going through a series of messages that we'll be doing through the end of May called Living by Design, and we're looking at Matthew chapter 19 to begin with, and what we see in Matthew 19 is that the religious establishment in Jesus' day wanted to put Jesus on the hot seat by giving him a controversial hot-button issue that would put him at odds with somebody. And so they're trying to trap Jesus to lose popularity. Jesus is now risen in fame, and they want to get him in a got-you moment. And yet Jesus' response to the Pharisees' question about marriage and divorce, again, hot-button topics at that day, was not rooted in popular opinion. But he roots it in Scripture. Jesus takes the Pharisees, those who believe in the, the, the Bible that the Torah and Genesis was God's Word, he takes them back to the beginning and he roots his answer in the creation narrative found in Genesis. And here's what you have to understand, that when people come to you and they ask you why you believe what you believe and what is your opinion, don't just default to what everyone else says, default to what God's Word says. See, if Christianity is true, the author of our lives is the author of the Bible. And if we want to understand our story, we need to understand God's story. And so this morning, here's what I want you to get on this very complex issue of gender and what does it mean to be a man and a woman is this, is that God created in humanity, in his image, both male and female for one another. God created humanity in his image, both male and female for one another. Now, let me give you a side note here. This is the topic I'm going to be addressing this morning, and the issue here is not an easy, simplistic 
answer. I don't have enough time to really get into the hearts of it, nor do I have even the ability to explain it all. This is a very complex situation, but yet it is impacting many people in our church and very many people in our society. So one of the things I want you to know in this sermon series is every one of my sermon notes is going to be available online, and all of my references that I cite are going to be cited, so you can go and look them up and research them as well. So we want to make sure that you have tools. Also, in our Next Steps room, we have limited numbers. There's a book that I'm going to be referencing over this next few weeks called 10 Questions Every Teen Should Ask and Answer About Christianity. And this is one of the best books I've read lately on this issue and on many different issues that I think are pertinent to today's young people, to today's teenagers. But what we're going to be looking at is we're going to be looking at four things that we see as we think about this issue of male and female and God's design, God's plan for gender. The first thing we're going to see is it God's intention for gender? Then we're going to see sin's corruption of gender. Then we're going to look at our confusion over gender. And then fourthly, we're going to look at God's compassion for confused people. So number one, God's intention for gender. In chapter 19, verse 4, Jesus says that he who created them from the beginning created them male and female. So if you read the creation narrative, God creates everything, the world and everything in it. He creates man. But after he creates man in Genesis 2, he says it's not good for man to be alone. So he creates the woman. Now, think about this. All up into this point, every time God's created anything, it's good, it's good, it's good. But now this is not good. But then, if you read the creation narrative, after God created the woman, God said it was very good. Now, what does this teach us? It teaches us that women make life in the universe very good. Men, that was your moment. That was when I should hear you say, amen, amen. Both man and woman were made in the image of God. But as you read chapter 2, I don't want you to get the thought that God was forgetful or absent-minded in the creation of humanity. God's original plan has always included women. Women are not an afterthought. How Moses presents this to us is he tells us in chapter 1 that God's intention from the beginning was male and female in the image of God. And chapter 2 shows us the design and the order by which he created both male and female. And so what I want you to understand, it wasn't that women were like, oh, that would be a nice feature to add to humanity. No, it was always his intention, but there's a design within this intention. And so what you notice here is that when God creates man and woman in chapter 1, He blesses them and gives them both the task of being fruitful, multiplying, filling and subduing the earth and having dominion over everything to reflect God's glory and God's goodness. But yet he creates man and woman, men and women differently. So men and women are equally important to God, but they're also importantly different. Men and women are equal in the eyes of God in value and dignity and worth but are different in design, and they're different in calling. They're different in function. See, men and women are different. Amen? They just are. Women and men are different biologically. They're different chromosomally. Uh, Every cell in a human body is stamped with either XX chromosome or XY chromosome. We're different anatomically. We have different plumbing, all right? We just are. We just do. We're different physically. We have different muscle mass, bone structure, hormones. We're different neurologically, different brain sizes, and we're wired differently. But yet none of those differences make one gender or one sex inferior or superior to the other. 
God made us different so that he can make us one. I mean, could you imagine if everyone looked like you, talked like you, thought like you, dressed like you, did like you? That would be not very good, unless you were me. (laughs) But God created each as a complementary expression of the image of God. So both sexes, both male and female, fully bear God's image on their own. So you don't have to be married to be a more complete or a, a, a full image of God's image. You, you can do that on your own. But there's something about a man and there's something about a woman that reflect God's image in a unique and distinct way. Uh, Rebecca McLaughlin, who wrote this book, said this. She said that God could have designed things so that you did not need both a man and a woman to make a baby. He could have miraculously made a new crop of people every 20 years or so, or he could have made us like amoebas that just reproduce by themselves. But instead, she says, God made us male and female and designed us so that the new human can be created through deep connection between a man and a woman that pictures Jesus, Jesus' love for the church. So what I want you to understand is that God's intention for two genders was ultimately for human flourishing and for human happiness. I don't want you to get the idea that God just wants us to be unhappy. Now, there's so many churches that make it all about God making you happy, and so he'll do whatever it takes to make you happy. That's not in the Bible. God says, be holy for I am holy. He doesn't say, be happy for I am happy. But yet God created us to be happy. He created both male and females to enjoy him, to enjoy his creation, and to enjoy each other. And you and I are most satisfied in life when we function according to our design. So we see here God's intention for gender. Secondly, we see sin's corruption of gender. Now, we didn't read the the fall narrative in chapter 3, but I'm sure we will over the course of this sermon series. But what we note here is that Adam and Eve rebelled against God. God put them in charge of everything, but God says there's one thing you can't do, and that is you cannot eat of the fruit of this tree that I planted in the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, it wasn't that the tree itself was evil. It wasn't that the fruit on that tree was evil. What it was is it was a symbol. It was a symbol to Adam and Eve and to all of creation that God has ultimate authority. And so God says don't do it because he has the authority to say not to do it. And so when Adam and Eve come and they take of that tree and they eat of that tree, they are rebelling against God's authority. They are rejecting God's authority. They're going against God's design. They're doing their own thing. And in doing so, a chain reaction of devastating consequences follow. Spiritual death and brokenness occur. Dysfunction and corruption now twist God's good gifts. And sin takes that which is good and distorts it into being evil. Chapter 3, you see the consequences of the sin because sin always has consequences. The first consequence you see is that the earth became cursed. There's natural evil, natural disaster, thorns and thistles, tornadoes, floods, famines, earthquakes, hurricanes, and mosquitoes. All a part of the fall. Even bird droppings on my truck. A part of the fall. Literally. The fall. The first service got that better. Second, work became hard. The earth became cursed. Work became hard. Before sin, work was a delight. Now it's difficult. We're either lazy with no motivation to work or we're workaholics with work being our God. Relationships became dysfunctional. Husbands and wives fight. Parenting is tough. I mean, you see the first children of Adam and Eve, what happens? One son kills the other son. 
Cain kills his brother. Now, I mean, here's the question. How long did Cain hate his brother? As long as he was able. <laughs> I've got dad jokes. I've got dad jokes. The earth became cursed. Work became hard. Relationships became dysfunctional. Sex became dangerous. People, even in the book of Genesis, fight over it. There are crimes of sexual passion. There are lives that are ruined by sexual abuse. And some of you, sadly, are watching online or in the room, have been victims of sexual abuse. The rebellion against God's design manifests itself now into the very core of who we are as a person. You and I are rotten to the core. And because we're sinful, sin causes us to call evil things good and good things evil. It causes us to take that which God created to be normal and for us to believe it's abnormal. And for those things that are abnormal, we call normal. See, what, God do, what sin does is sin turns even God's gifts into idols. So we worship the creature rather than the creator. Sin corrupts how men and women treat each other. I mean, these are generalizations, but you can see that, and, 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 and some, maybe even you in the room or those that you know, that, that sin corrupts how a man reacts and responds to his wife or to other women. He becomes passive or lazy, or he becomes macho, macho man or abusive or even chauvinistic. You can even see in some generation, generalizations that women become emasculating and domineering. Or they become codependent upon a man. I've seen in, in situations where women even allow themselves to be abused by their husbands because they're afraid of losing their husband. One of the biggest issues of our day and how we treat other people of other genders is the issue of pornography. I mean, I serve as the chaplain of the defending state champion Seminole High School football team. Go Seminoles, right? And um, I remember a few years ago, we were talking to some of the, the football players. These are teenagers. These are people that go to high school, that live in the world. And, and, and then we were talking about the issues of pornography. And I never forget one student saying, well, is, is it even wrong? Is, it, is pornography even wrong? Well, pornography is the dehumanization of people. It's exploiting predominantly women for our own self-gratification. It's using someone's body for our own pleasure and devaluing their dignity. And what pornography is, it's a sin against our bodies. And it's also a sin against God's design. Sin corrupts how we think about ourselves and even our gender. You have sexism where we think that our gender is better than the other gender. I remember as a kid growing up, you remember this, these moments where you said, no girls allowed? Boys rule, girls drool. Girls have cooties. You remember those? I don't know what a cootie is, but I don't want it. But then you grow up, and now girls can be allowed, right? <laughs> but yet the issue is the feelings of superiority can remain. We push down people of opposite genders, whether you are a chauvinistic person or a, or a very liberal feministic person that wants to push down men. Either way, you can see the battle of the sexes. But on the other spectrum of that, you can even get to the point where you hate your own gender and wish you were another gender. People get mad at God for making them the person that they are, and so they want to rage against their designer. Sin corrupts all of this. Now, one other thing that sin does, and, and this is, sin touches us not only relationally and socially and politically and spiritually, but it even touches us biologically. And there are some people, at least a 1,000 people a year, 
uh, that are born in America with a condition called intersex. And that is that they were born uh, neither anatomically male or female, or they were born both anatomically male or female, and even with similar chromosomal characteristics. Now, I know that there are spectrums of that, but the, the church should understand that there are people that are born this way. Even in the Bible, in Jesus' day, there were people born this way. And so our posture is not to call them names, but our posture is to show them love and compassion because many people that are born this way are unable to have children. They're unable to, 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 uh, to experience that. But that doesn't make them any less of a person. And it doesn't mean that they can't be used by God. But because of the fall, we have this function. That's what I want you to understand, is that all the good designs of God are going to be destroyed or corrupted by sin. But this gets me to the third point. And I went really fast to get us to the third point. Our confusion over gender. Now I'm going to slow down. So what we note as we read these passages is that Jesus and Genesis agree that in the beginning, God created male and female. That is a truth claim. This is an absolute truth claim in the fact that it teaches three things. Number one, it says that God, his original design for humanity was two genders. Two, God has a design for humanity with a purpose. And number three, God has the authority to say what is right and what is wrong. So God created humanity in his image. That's issue number one. God created each male and female, with their own distinct purpose and design. And three, he has the authority to say what's right and wrong. So that's what the truth claims. That's an absolute truth claim that we, that me as a believer, hopefully you as a believer, would, would agree with. But yet there are many in our world that believe the, somewhat to, the, to a degree the opposite. They do not believe that people are created by an actual personal God. They, they don't believe in a God. Or they believe that maybe there's some sort of force out there, but they're not sure. But here's the problem. If you get rid of God, if you have no God, then that means you have no authority or you have no moral right or wrong. There are no fixed realities. If there is no God, there are no fixed realities. And so rather than God giving my, me my identity and, and, and it's who God says I am, it's now, if you believe this, it's who you say you are. It's your own self-determined identity. And so, in other words, the philosophy of our day is now this. You can decide who you want to be and who you are. So whatever we believe we are, even if it doesn't conform with physical reality, is now my truth. And so one of the biggest violations in our society is for people to not recognize and appreciate my truth. So I'll give you an example. Let's say I told you that I believe inside of me that I'm a bunny. And I want you to start calling me a bunny. If you don't call me a bunny, and, and if you don't see me as a bunny, then you are not just rejecting my thoughts, you are rejecting me. See, if you don't celebrate and embrace my identity as a bunny, then you, you hate me. You don't love me. Now, that's not what we believe. But when it comes to gender, when it comes to the world today and thinking about who you are, there, once, there is a, a desire for a separation between biological sex, what you were born as, and gender. That they could be two separate things. And so the thought is, is that my body does not have to define whether or not I'm a male or female. My feelings are what defines whether I'm a male or a female. So in other words, if I 
have feelings that do not match my body, I should be able to decide what I want to be called or what I don't want to be called. And I've talked to people, and I've heard people literally say this, and I've read this as well, that people say, you know, I feel like I'm a man trapped in a woman's body. Or I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. And I've heard some people say, well, I'm neither gender. I'm non-binary. I'm neither one. Or I'm both. I mean, even Facebook today, there's 50 genders for you to choose from. Psychologists call this issue, which again, this is a legitimate issue in some people. It's called gender dysphoria. Gender dysphoria is is the severe discomfort in one's biological sex. So here's something interesting. Because of the fall, people feel this way. And, and about a decade ago, statistically in America, 0.01% of Americans identified themselves as having gender dysphoria or being transgendered. That's t- uh, 10 years ago. Today, more than 2% of American high school students classify themselves as being transgendered. Did you just hear what I said? With the majority of them being females. Over the last decade, there has been a 5,000% increase of white females aged 11 to 21 years old with gender dysphoria. One of the new phenomena that sociologists cannot understand is something called rapid onset gender dysphoria, in which you're seeing in schools, in high schools, pockets of young girls who are friends, and they all are believing that they are the opposite sex of what they were born to be. And, and you see this phenomena in certain other areas. And so there was a, a study that was done by Brown University researcher Lisa Littman that began to study this spike of trans identification of young girls. And she concluded that peer pressure and social media had a lot to do with trans teen, this trans teen phenomena. She says, based on parental, parental reports, none of these girls had exhibited symptoms of gender dysphoria at the age in which it typically presents itself in early childhood. People that are born with gender dysphoria, typically that happens pre-puberty, from like ages 2 to 10 or 2 to 11. And when puberty hits, you're going to notice that their, their body changes and then they, their mindset tends to change. But popular social media influencers and even celebrities insist today that if you feel uncomfortable in your body, you're probably trans. Now, I was a young man. I'm still a young man. Amen. (laughs) I'm under 40. It's all downhill from there, folks. Amen. Old Gray Mary, what she used to be. I've not had these feelings of feeling like I was another gender. But I've had feelings as a young person of not really understanding my body and having body issues. If you talk to a lot of young people, girls, a lot of them, many of them, struggle with how they look in the mirror. That's why you have this, you you used to have this phenomena that happened in the 90s and early 2000s of anorexia, bulimia. You see kind of the same kind of rapid onset. It's almost like it works together. And so the, what the social media influencers and YouTubers and, and the celebrities are saying to these young women who feel uncomfortable about their bodies, they say, listen, if you start a course of testosterone, all your problems will go away. And you have parents who are struggling with their children because their children are confused or they have gender dysphoria. 
And, and these kids are going to their public schools and they're being affirmed and everything in society with this concept. And then parents are even told that if you do not affirm your child and help them be what they want to be, then your kids may be suicidal. And what parent wants to see their child kill themselves? But yet, you have to understand, it's the parent's job to teach and guide their child through every stage of life. Parents are tasked to save their children from themselves. I mean, if a child decides, you know what, they came to you and said, you know what, I am a superhero. And they put on a cape, and they climb up on the roof, and they say, I'm a superhero, I'm going to jump off the roof, and I'm going to fly. You're not going to affirm them in their decision. No, no matter how passionately they believe that they are a superhero and they can fly, you're, what are you going to do? If you're a good parent, you're going to try to reason with them, and you're going to say, listen, if you jump off the roof, there will be consequences. And if they don't listen to reason, which most kids don't, are you just going to throw up your hands and say, well, you know what? They've got to experience the consequences. No. You're a parent. And a parent's job is to protect, not enable. And here's why. I kind of alluded to this. But study after study has shown that between 80 and 95% of kids who have gender dysphoria end up identifying with their true birth and genetic gender after puberty. In other words, they grow out of it. It's never a good idea to do irreversible damage to a child by giving them what they want. Now, the modern view is that emotions are what define your reality. It's what your truth is. So people who struggle with gender, and I've spoken to them, say that there's something deep inside of me that is not connected to my body telling me that I'm not my biological sex. I mean, I've had somebody say, you know, I've been struggling with my whole life, and I feel uncomfortable in the body that I'm in. And so it is easy for them to think and for us to think that if you just change your body, that's the key to happiness. But many who have undergone surgeries, most, many of which are irreversible, and those who have gone through hormone therapies, many of which cause lasting physical damage, are more miserable, more depressed, and suicidal. As a matter of fact, the suicide rate for those who have undergone surgery is 20 times higher than those who don't. Now, you may say, well, I saw this person on YouTube, or I saw this person on Instagram, or I saw this person on TikTok, and they trans, uh, translated and, and transgendered, and, and now they're the happiest they've ever been in their life. For every one of those you show me, I can show you 20 that don't. Here's why. Why is that? Because reality sits in. And what I'm about to say may be illegal in a few years, but I'm going to say it anyway. Transgendered men do not become women. And, trans, and transgendered women do not become men. They, they may become a masculine woman or a feminized man, but you don't change. Why? Because you can't override your creator. Now, ironically... 
the same popular culture that tells us to believe in and trust in science as the ultimate authority of life is the same culture that tells us that when it comes to gender, don't listen to science. Again, Rebecca McLaughlin says that many people today think that Christians are foolish for believing in things that cannot be measured with the tools of science. Go to the slide, please. But the idea that there is a deep thing deep within us that tells us if we are male or female against the evidence of our physical bodies also doesn't line up with science at all. Without a belief in a creator God who made humans in his image, so if you don't believe in that, you are left without any real definition of what it means to be a human and what it means to be a male or a female. See, what it means to be a man isn't necessarily what culture says it is. It isn't what, what, to be a woman isn't what culture says it is, okay? What it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman is what God says it is. God created a man to be a man to the very depths of his soul, and God created a woman to be a woman in the very depths of her soul. And if you try to define your own reality apart from a creator God, I have seen anecdotally that it, you are left with nothing but confusion and hurt. As one former transgendered person says, in the transgendered world, you are told to believe in disreality and you're told to not believe in reality. And this is a true statement that I'm going to be sharing not only this week but next week, but this is a truth statement. The further we get from God's design, the deeper the misery we experience. The further you get, and this isn't just about sexuality, this isn't just about gender, this is about life. The further you get away from God's design for your life, the deeper misery you experience. It may feel good for a little bit, it may feel good for a season, but it ultimately leads to misery. Ultimately. But here's the fourth point. God's compassion for confused people. If you come here just thinking, well, this is a great sermon and and I'm so glad that our pastor finally brought up this issue. It's so apropos in our day. And, and, and uh, there are so many people that are so confused and, and, ah, you know. If that's what you leave here with, I don't want you to leave here with that. I'll be honest with you. The things that I've said today would probably be considered bigotry. And we're going to be, if you believe in the truth of God's word, you're going to be called a bigot. But I never want us as a church to ever act like a bigot. What we see is in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sinned against God. Think of the worst sin imaginable. Just think of it. Just, well, don't think too much about it, but just think of the worst sin imaginable. And multiply it by infinity. And that's how God feels about sin. And Adam and Eve sinned against God, and they broke their relationship with Him. And the result of that is they who once could walk with God now hide in shame. They live in fear. For the first time in their lives, they looked at each other and said, you're naked. <laughs> they feel guilt. In chapter 3, we see here that God says, where are you? And the issues we talked about last week, it wasn't that God didn't know where they were. He wanted Adam and Eve to see where they were. How does God respond? Does he blast them to hell? No. Could he have? Yes. What does he do? Well, first, he deals with the devil. And he promises the devil that there's coming a day that the head of Satan was going to be crushed by the heel of Jesus. 
But then he pronounces consequences. And it's interesting that just as God created men and women differently, he also cursed them differently. Think about that. But yet, he does something remarkable. Remember that God said that the consequence of sin was what? It was death. Chapter 2, verse 16. And Romans 6, 33 says that the wages of sin is death. The day that Adam and Eve rebelled against God and went against his design was the day that they died spiritually. But notice what God does. Chapter 3, verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. In other words, those who are hiding in their shame and their guilt and their fear, what does God do? He covers their fear with his love. He killed an animal. The clothing here that God provides was not out of plastic. It wasn't polyester or urethane or whatever people wear nowadays. The clothing came from the skin of an animal. And the only way you get a skin of an animal is you have to kill the animal. And this was an animal that God created. But yet God kills an innocent creature for the guilty one. He covers the confusion, the shame, and the guilt, and the fear. He pays the cost for their rebellion. They rejected God's design for them, but God did not reject them eternally. And the same is true for you and I. All of us in this room are sinners. We all have in one shape, form, or fashion went against God's design. It doesn't matter who you are. And our sin may not be as noticeable as other people's sins are, but they're just equally noticeable to, and always noticeable to God. And yet God is willing to forgive. See, as a church, and the church has not done a very good job at helping people that are struggling with their identity. Our response to someone who's confused is not often critical or bullying. But what should our response be? Well, our response to someone who struggles with their gender or sexuality should always be truth with love. As John Piper would say, compassion with conviction. We do not affirm sin. We do not tolerate sin. We do not condone a sinful lifestyle, but we do point them to a Savior. We love them and point them to the only one who has the power to change their confusion and change their life. Now, I want you to understand that if your remedy to coming to someone who's gender confused or sexually confused is just to tell them merely that Jesus loves them, it may not necessarily be received as kindly as you want. This is a very, very complicated issue. And there are people that are very confused and they're not open to the church or even to the gospel. And so what our first response should be, rather than when we see somebody that doesn't look the way we should look at and think they should look, is rather than pick on them, we should pray for them. One of the things that I'm asking God, because listen, I'm a sinful person just like you are, is that when I see people that don't look right, if you know what I mean, that are confused, is it rather than in my mind being repulsed, rather than in my mind making a joke or making fun of them, rather than that, I'm saying, God, help me to pray for that person. Because if you see somebody who is confused about who they are, that person's hurting. They're hurting.
greatest apologetic, one of the greatest apologetics for broken people is love and compassion. Again, not tolerating or compromising, but is love and compassion. Just as you would love somebody and show compassion to somebody who has leukemia, so you should have love and compassion for someone who's gender confused. And I believe with all of my heart that our love may be the best argument for them to actually listen to the truth that we believe. People will never know how much, or never care how much you know until they really know how much you care. That's why 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, this verse came to my mind as I was thinking about this text. Above all, Peter says, keep on loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Isn't that what God did in the garden? His love covered their sins, right? Isn't that what Jesus did on the cross? He took our sin and our sorrow, our brokenness, and he made it his very own. He stood on the, he was there hanging on the cross and God completely treated him as you and I deserve to be treated in the full wrath of God. And yet, he did it for love. He did it for gender confused people. He did it for sexually confused people. He did it for racists and murderers and liars and thieves and greedy people and self-righteous people. And proud people. He did it for love. And he covers you with his love. Church, the best thing we can do is just cover people with our love. But it's not, our love is not going to be enough. We have to cover them with his love. So if you here today or you have a family member or a friend who's struggling with their gender or sexuality, or if you're here today struggling with who you are, there's grace. There's a God who knows you, he knows who you are. He knows how you're made. He knows your struggles. And he loves you enough to help you recover his design for your life. God has made us so that we thrive when we live according to his design. Rebecca McLaughlin says, As a Christian, I do believe that there's a voice deep inside me that tells me who I am. That voice is God's spirit who unites every believer to Jesus like a body to its head or a wife to a husband. The spirit speaks through God's word and guides his people. This voice inside is not disconnected from our bodies, but because the same God who lives within us by his spirit also created our bodies. Jesus tells us that God created humans from the beginning, male and female. And if we are trusting in Jesus, he who knows us from the inside out and he who makes us belong, even when we feel like we don't fit in. Let me say that last phrase again. Even, or pardon me, if we're trusting in Jesus, he knows us from the inside out and he makes us belong even when we feel like we don't fit in. Have you ever felt like you don't fit in? Have you ever felt like you don't belong? Have you ever felt like that you're too far gone? The gospel says you're not. The question is, will you trust Jesus or will you trust popular culture? Will you trust Jesus or will you trust yourself? The biggest question that we need to ask this morning is this. Choose you this day who you will serve. But more importantly, choose you this day who you will trust. Who is your trust? My prayer is Jesus. 
And regardless of who you are or where you're from or what you're watching or what you're doing, Jesus Christ can change your life. He can clear your confusion. He can save you. And so I'm going to pray for you and I'm going to pray for our church. And if you're here and you have needs, we want to come alongside of you. We want to pray for you. Bow with me. Father God, in Jesus' name, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel truths. Thank you, Father, that when we were sinking deep in sin, you saved us. It was your love that lifted us. Nothing else could help. Nothing else could do. It was love that lifted us. So, Father, this morning, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be working beyond even the words that I'm saying. And through the power of your Holy Spirit, let it speak and penetrate to our hearts. Those of us who maybe have uh, don't struggle with this issue, but yet we look down and pick on people, God, convict us of that and help us stop it. And, God, those in this room that do struggle with these issues, those that struggle with their gender or sexuality, God, I pray that today they would understand that you love them and you've designed them and you have something far better than them, for them, than they can even imagine. God, move in, the, in this way. And Father, we pray for anyone who needs to know you as Savior, that God, today, they would trust you because your arms are open wide. In Jesus' name. Thank you again for listening to the Central Church Podcast. For more information on how to take your next step, visit us online at centralsanford.net.